Hi, and welcome to the Lavender Menace podcast. Happy Pride Month. I can't believe that's where we are right now in the space and time of mm-hmm. this world. My name is Sunny. I am one of your co-hosts. And yeah, I'm a June baby. I'm a Cancer. So yeah. this is not only Pride Month, it's Sunny Month. <laughs> and hello, everyone. My name is Renaissance. I'm your other co-host. And... I'm graduating this month, so it's not only Pride Month, it is also my college graduation month. God willing, I make it there. Woo! Yeah, they will, thank and you, everyone will you. cheer, and clap, <laughs> and scream. They better, the whole stadium better fuck. <laughs> when my name is called specifically, everyone better rise to their goddamn feet. <laughs> like at like, the shitty movie at Cannes Film Festival. troops. Respect Literally. the god. <laughs> Respect our service women. Like, come no. on. <laughs> Dead ass. So a lot of y'all have been barricade at the Lavender Menace Twitter mentions, asking us for our opinions <laughs> on things. So on various states of things. <laughs> We're here to address. No. <laughs> Actually, we have a special. Every episode is special. Come on now. But this episode, we're going to be talking about our uh, queer classes. We have, we've mm-hmm. both taken queer lit classes in yeah. the past couple semesters, quarters, whatnot. And we wanted to, like, go through our syllabuses. Syllabusi? Syllabuses? <laughs> Syllabusi. Both, both endings. <laughs> and talk about that and, you know, honor and hashtag honor our Pride Month, but you know, before we do that, I don't know hour. if my review is going to be in honor. <laughs> in, honor. <laughs> in, in my foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but before we do that for our hashtag shared media portion of part two of the pod, let's get into some hot takes so we can answer yeah. some of these questions. Although we did do like a live reaction of the Midnight's Bonus tracks where we get into some of our thoughts and feelings to on Taylor's um, antics currently. And that's available mm-hmm. on our Patreon, if you, you know, want to go look at that and join that. And we always appreciate y'all and love y'all so much. So anyways, Renaissance, do you want to read our first hot take that we got like a week ago? (laughs) Here we go. Dear Sunny and Renaissance, I hope both y'all are having a lovely day and I'm just going to get this out of the way. I'm not listening to the podcast with my loving girlfriend. In fact, I'm single and miserable. My hot take (laughs) that should be lukewarm is that white swifties need to shut the fuck up as a jewish dyke i'm obviously annoyed at blondie for dating dot 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 you know who dot 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 but that's not even what i'm shocked slash that upset about because none of us were under the impression that she was a good person or at the very least she doesn't surround herself with good people What has been infuriating has been seeing Swifties bend over backwards to absolve Taylor of blame for all of her actions, specifically when they target POC slash Jews that are voicing their feelings about the situation. Recently, Candace Owens 
posted a podcast episode talking about the Maddie Healy situation and criticizing Taylor for dating someone who watches racist torture porn and literally not attacking her at all, which is uncharacteristic for Miss Owen. <laughs> and literally the replies and quotes are full of people, mostly white women, attacking her like, what the fuck is wrong with you that you attack a black woman for feeling upset about black women being brutalized because of the allegiance you feel to some rich white woman. There are so many other things I could mention that have happened recently, but I don't want this to be too long. Thanks for fighting the good fight, being an antagonistic commie swifty dyke on Twitter, and keeping me entertained on my walks to campus. Much love, Layla, they, them. Thank you, Layla. I saw that tweet as well, and I retweeted it because someone, well, no, I saw the tweet of someone being like, you guys need to stop being mad at Candace Owens for saying something Mm -hmm. even though she's obviously like a right-wing grifter and like a total Mm -hmm. fucking freak because she's still a black woman at the end of the day and the fucking smoke that people have for black women will always be fundamentally rooted or come from the fact that they are black women no matter what their politics are Mm -hmm. like on some level anyways so you know if you can't and that's sort of what the whole white leftist bro-y podcast approach to talking about women and like problematic women etc like the red scare girlies <laughs> yeah. um are that the approach to like addressing hashtag problematic people or whatever is that like because they are problematic and or they are re- like really terrible in many ways it's okay to be incredibly racist and misogynistic and really disgusting towards them which mm-hmm. that's just not never gonna be a real <laughs> like that's just not that's just not like how are you a person who exists in the world and like people like like people like you are hated like <laughs> and not even in a way that is like not justified <laughs> yeah uh, anyways but regardless I think like a lot of diehard Swifties have been, well, okay, of course, diehard Swifties are A, crazy, and B, very mad. I was gonna say, annoying on the best of days. <laughs> Incredibly obnoxious and annoying and wrong on the best of days, in the clearest of skies, in the most temperate conditions. <laughs> temperate conditions is crazy. But no, literally, like, <laughs> the thing is, is that, okay, the major- from what I understand, the majority of the hashtag Maddie Healy allegations or, like, the stuff that is recent... I don't even is... think they're allegations. He's <laughs> saying and doing this shit on camera, on mic, with, or, in front of thousands of people who paid to see him do it. Not the allegations, but, like, the things that people are talking are... People are basically mm-hmm. being like, okay, he he has said this and he has done this and whatnot, right? Mm-hmm. And the most recent thing or, like, the thing people are really talking about are his comments about Ice Spice on... A podcast with Adam Friedland. Friedland? Is that mm-hmm. how you speak? I don't know. He's the guy who hosts Come Town, um, which is a really <laughs> terrible, misogynistic, white leftist bro podcast, leftist quote unquote. And I think Matty Healy has like a long history of being that type of guy, you know, like the yeah. irony pilled, like leftist dude thing. And so on that podcast, like, the other guy was like making really racist comments about Ice Spice, and Maddie was like laughing or whatever. I think on a po- this same podcast or in a similar situation, there the the torture porn 
thing was brought up as well. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it was that they, like, Maddie Healy specifically, like, watches it necessarily as mm-hmm. much as it, they were talking about, like, the name of the site and, like, why it was or talking about how it was funny, which is, like, okay. Yeah, we get it. Y'all think that women's suffering is hilarious and that's because like, those are I freaks. Really, like, I just... <laughs> Like, it's, like, part of me is, like, I don't care about the semantics or what was actually said or not said. I think they should all die. I <laughs> Sorry. Really? Thanks the I don't interact. Ball. I don't have the power to actually make this happen. Like, don't fucking come for me. But, like, <laughs> hashtag in a, dramat- in a dramatic irony way, I think that they should die. I don't, I don't care of... Well, Maddie Healy didn't say the joke. He laughed at the joke. <laughs> I don't care. Send him to, like, life behind bars. Like, I don't. In a just world, these men will mm-hmm. be facing the wall with, like, a firing squad. <laughs> like, and it, it, just period. You know what I mean? And this has nothing to do with, yeah, like, come on. Why do you guys have careers? You should kill yourself. So <laughs> it's, just, it's just like so like like so many people get fucking quote unquote canceled or whatever. Like it it's just the powers that be, that being white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, it's just like a man can literally be so horrific, so publicly, say things that just should like should not be platformed in any way should not like be made other people's problems like men like this already exist in the day-to-day that i can bump into against my will at any time maddie healy no longer needs to be famous (laughs) and like have a career like if this was any other smaller artist venues would be fucking shutting down contracts for their shows or whatever the Mm -hmm. fuck over Mm -hmm. the things that that person said like if that like like, it, it it just wouldn't be, like, separating the art from the artist or whatever the fuck of kind of things that people are trying to use to justify him still having any form of career and the comments that he said. And the whole thing about these white women Swifties who are saying, you shouldn't hold Taylor Swift accountable or, you know, for dating Maddie Healy or whatever, or being like, you're actually attacking Taylor or it's misogynist to, like, hold the girlfriend responsible for the boyfriend's actions or whatever. And it's like, actually, no, none of you have been gay or a black woman or just like a person of color who has seen like white girls with racist boyfriends be like, but I'm not racist and homophobic. And it's Mm -hmm. like, actually, you are. Mm -hmm. Actually, you are. Yeah. And because if you weren't and under any other circumstances, being associated with someone who does hold that views or can even laugh at those jokes or even make light of something like that would deeply disgust you. Yeah. So that's just the fact of the situation. Yeah. I feel like the way, but I mean, there is something to be said about the way that Swifties are defending <laughs> a Maddie Healy and Maddie Healy's mm-hmm. and then like Taylor Swift in because of her relationship to Maddie, Maddie Healy is fueling and also a result of the way that people's sort of like 
people's framings and attacks and like exaggerations and sort of like the rhetoric used around you know how like what Taylor Swift's career or like personas or situation is like these things are in conflict in a way that are escalating against each other in a way that like kind of mirrors what was happening in like during you know what led up to what the reputation era and like the reputation era you know what I mean like there Mm -hmm. there is that dynamic of like there are people who hate Taylor Swift and then there are people who like will are ride or are 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 Swifties TM and Mm -hmm. like it's just so interesting to see that play out because simultaneously the defense of her from Swifties is like so hilariously terrible to see because that this is just your average like the sort of talking points and acceptance and ongoing defense of her comes from a place of like a like stan twitter like brain rot and b like Mm -hmm. default white supremacy patriarchy etc of like the world like that's just how we operate and everyone has a friend who has a racist boyfriend like everyone has a everyone knows someone who is besties or is dating someone who is a dirtbag left type misogynist dude bro who is just like racist but pretends like he isn't because he's just joking like people who (laughs) people like know this type of person and accept it and just accept it as a fact of life and whatnot right there's like that but then there's also people who just like don't like taylor swift on principle like and anything she does is already wrong and there's nothing Mm -hmm. that she can do that is right and so when she actually does something that is fucked up like everything from the fucking jet emissions to Mm -hmm. like you know, dating Maddie Healy, it's just, like, fuel for the fire, but also, why should she care as an artist? Because it doesn't affect her sales and her fan base, because her fans will always defend her, and also, her, like, that only makes her fans defend her more, you know what I mean? Like, it creates this dynamic that is just, like, so crazy to witness online and be in the midst of, that, like, (laughs) is, in the aftermath of this, is going to be it even more insane to reflect on i feel like but anyways the i ne- think it's like mm-hmm. so different from the reputation era though just because like there's no oh the phone call was edited to kind of like turn this narrative around later well i mean who knows because we don't again like we don't know anything about their relationship dynamic in a real way because they're like celebrities you know what i mean yeah. like he could have any sort of relationship to her she can have any sort of relationship to him and their public association and the implications that they have are the implications that they are which is that like Taylor that's a really that's a freak dude like why why but at the same time it's like you can only really know that in the aftermath like in in the moment of like every Kanye West controversy with Taylor like the Mm -hmm. way that like (laughs) <laughs> Taylor Swift's black fans and also just like black Twitter in general came for Taylor every single time in the moment was always justified like it just was and I think like you we there's just no way to like we'll see I guess we'll we'll fucking see because also who knows maybe this might be her long-term boyfriend of like the next three years which <laughs> like but also this also might be over in the next three months 
Literally, who knows? I think that'll be really something. That'll be really something. And also, my like, patience wanes then <laughs> with each passing day. Like, I don't think I can survive. Like, so much these are longer. being like, like, ugh, understand then, bitch. It's not even like fucking about that. Like, am I gonna listen to her music? Like, yeah. That's how I've always felt but about, like, like, Lana Del Rey. I'm like, she's obviously a terrible person. But does she make bangers? Well, yes. <laughs> but it's, like, I just, like, it's just, like, girl, I don't, like, when I thought Miss Americana Part 2, like, I do not need a post-Maddie Healy Miss Americana <laughs> sequel. Like, I don't. Like, you were, th- like, I'm sorry, she is 32 years of age, 33 years of age. The that not is going the to college is really showing. It, <laughs> People are like, saying this. And also, in that time, not having, like, a minimum wage job. Like, you either go to college or have a terrible minimum wage job, and, like, that will make you a human being, and she did neither of those things. It's like, but, like, it's the thing is, like, I, I understand the parallels to the Kanye West thing and with reputation, but I think it's different because, like... Regardless of the reputation, both of them know how, or regardless of the relationship that they have, they know how it is coming across. And if there is something dark and sinister happening, you know, in that case scenario, love to her and whatever, and whatever, but she's older, she has gone through that reputation era cycle she has already done miss americana she already went into hiding for a year plus the pandemic like in this way she she's very really untouchable. should know better yeah I, but i i don't i mean her as a person she can make the art she can write the lyrics she can make the music that's fine if she doesn't care as an artist this is reflecting her as a person and what does it mean for an individual to be a celebrity at the status and at the height of a career that she has and if she is unable to reflect on that in any capacity and have any regard for the public implications of that that i think is more prominent and more significant than the other past yeah. Like, well, I quote think unquote cancellation she's had that are just because people hate young women. That's why this is the culmination of those things, though. I think because like the thesis of Miss Americana in a lot of ways is like, I have been seen, I have wanted my whole life to be seen as a good girl. Like that is what I want to be. And we also see this in like the folklore long pond sessions, right? Like she's like so committed to this like idea of like being a good girl and being seen as like a as as, like, a uh, good and okay person uh, in in the eyes of the public and whatnot, which is fascinating because it's, like, are, is this, is this your, is your hashtag growth era (laughs) at the expense of everyone and your own image and your own, like, your own supposed values that, like, you no longer care about being seen as good in one way or the other by associating with someone who, like, very much has never cared about being seen as good or, like, unproblematic. Like, I think that is... That's something that is, like, a result of all of the diff- these different eras and phases of, like, hashtag cancellation or whatnot. The, the waves of hate and whatnot that she has experienced... And it's also, like, uh, what I mean by, like, her being untouchable is that 
like, this doesn't affect her career. Like, this affects the way that some people think of her. But a lot of those people who think of her in that way have always thought of her that way. Like, oh, she's just, like, your average racist white woman. And and the people who are critical of this and then people who, like, it's it's all just so, oof. But anyway, our next hot take is from someone who has uh, titled or subject lined it with lesbian identity crisis, reading theory, avoiding white people. Hi, Sonessance Heart. I've been a fan of the pod for a while, but this is my first email. I'm a 25-year-old autistic-slash-ADHD non-binary lesbian Sagittarius, and I guess I'm a bit of an outlier in your fan base in that I'm neither a Swifty nor a Gaylor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of a casual Swift listener, and I'm sympathetic to the Gaylor cause, just not personally invested. I hope you understand. You know, that's really important. This is a really important approach to have, because that's called being Mm -hmm. normal. Normal? I'm in a bit of a pickle as of late for a handful of reasons. The first is I've been feeling afraid that I might be wrong about my identity, and I'm scared of the potential consequences of that. In 2020, I ended a long-term relationship with my ex-boyfriend because I realized I only loved him as a friend, and I've never been satisfied in any in any encounter with other men either. I haven't had any experience with women because I went to a Christian high school, so I was very repressed. And since ending my first and only relationship, I've been avoiding meeting new people because of the pandemic. My fear is that when I eventually find the opportunity to engage in a lesbian activity, I'll realize I was actually wrong about being a lesbian. Is this normal? Have either of you struggled with this kind of identity crisis? The second reason I'm emailing you is to ask for advice on reading theory. I've been struggling for years trying to read communist theory or read anything in general because my brain seems to dispose of every sentence immediately after I read the next. I'll usually understand each sentence, but I realize halfway through a page I have no idea what's been said. This kind of makes me feel like I shouldn't call myself a communist anymore, even though I've identified as one for about five years at this point. I feel like an imposter and a poser. Do you have any tips for reading difficult text? The third is kind of Swift related. I feel like conflicted by her ongoing friendship, question mark, question mark, question mark, with Maddie Healy. I was a fan up until around 2017 when I stopped listening to her for the same reasons a lot of people stopped listening to her music. Then, like a lot of other people, I started listening to her again just after Folklore dropped, and now I find myself sadly unable to enjoy her music because of the company she keeps. Regardless of whether or not she's dating him, they're definitely friends, and I can't understand why. What are your thoughts? Also, just one hot take, IDK. Actually, it might be kind of lukewarm. I'm white, and having grown up hearing the things white people say when people have color aren't around i think it's completely justified for people of color to avoid white people because there really isn't a way to know who's racist and who's not avoiding all white people is the only significantly effective way to avoid racist white people because most racist most racists know how to hide in public thanks if you've read this far i hope you are both well and also you're so smart and always right and correct about literally everything heart 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 from l they them thank you l this is really sweet yeah i have a question Mm mm-hmm Regarding the first point of the lesbian identity crisis. So they ended their long-term relationship with their ex-boyfriend. Three years ago. And then, yeah, three years ago. And then began identifying as a lesbian, but then now they're afraid that if they engage in lesbian activity, they'll realize that they're not a lesbian? Yes. Did I understand that correctly? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I feel like, Identity crises regarding lesbianism is very typical and normal. And because mm-hmm. lesbianism is all about repression, uh, <laughs> you'll, it's like, honestly, it doesn't, I don't think it really matters. <laughs> no, like, real. My hot take in response to this is I don't really give a fuck and not in a blase insensitive way. I mean, 
girl do it do what you want to do <laughs> it really yeah it really like I think it's something that if if saying that you're a lesbian or identifying as a lesbian is something that still resonates with you and the anxiety is coming from a future projection of okay but what if I engage in lesbian activity and then I realize that I'm not a lesbian is like what would that activity even look like what would that mean like like if it's that sort of thing then you can just keep on being a lesbian I don't know I'm not gonna be like Where's your? Have you submitted your reapplication to the lesbian committee? Right, you card carrying lesbian <laughs> member. Like, you have to. You have um, to do X number of like, yeah, X number <laughs> of lesbian things, or then you get booted out. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think like, it really like, it doesn't matter in a really serious way, to be honest. And I think like. So much of, like, dating, like, hooking up with people, like, you know, all of that is so situational. Like, it's so based off of where you are, what you're doing, and, like, what your life looks like. And it's, like, not really about, like, who you are. And I think that is kind of why so many people stay closeted, even, like, to themselves for so long like they're like mm-hmm. for a lot of people there's just like no way to know that you are a gay person when you're in certain circumstances obviously like which is I think what Elle is describing and like their experiences growing up in like a Christian high school and whatnot like it's just yeah it's just hard you know and it's hard to like date or like ha- go lesbian dating and whatnot <laughs> like you're going hunting. especially if like because it sounds like from going to like a Christian high school like like there was just sexual repression across the board like gay straight sexual Mm -hmm. repression so in that case coming to terms or whatever realizing that about yourself is gonna like be something that only comes out in like different environments or like with time or something like that and I lesbians and experience um sexual repression or romantic repression in like any way shape or form it's like there's going to be multiple layers to that regardless. So just do what you want to do, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, and I think, like, the identity crisis thing, I think, like, when I identified as lesbian but didn't, like, date or, like, hook up with or whatever with anyone for, like, a year or maybe two, and for, like, the first few, for the maybe, like, the first one, two years that I identified as a lesbian and like it kept on being like dud after dud and I was like okay this is kind of a flop like this is stupid and I think it was partly because I didn't understand like I hadn't realized that I was a like that I was like a femme lesbian that was I think that was part mm-hmm. of it which this is this is just my experience. Like this isn't universal at all. But like part of it was that I hadn't realized that like my, the dynamic that I was seeking out and like what I was, what like where chemistry and where attraction and where like romance and can could really arise out of was out of like a butch femme dynamic and not one that is like the baseline lesbian dating scene, which is like not that. Mm-hmm. 
And so it was that, I think. And I think it was also because, like, so many people right out of the pandemic and whatnot, like, also just, like, had no idea how to date. So, like, I think it's, like, that as well. And, um, And also when you're not engaging in, like, a college campus hookup culture or if you're not in, you know, like... If you're not using regularly using like dating apps in a city where there are a plethora of lesbians your age, like it's just hard. It's really hard and it's like just not your fault and like you're questioning your identity is that's like normal and also not something to be concerned about, but also like you don't have to question your identity on the basis of these things is I think my final thoughts on that. But in terms of reading theory, when we'll talk more about this when we get into our syllabi, syllabi, <laughs> syllabusy, <laughs> but like <laughs> celibacy, syllabi, <laughs> syllabus. That's a slam poem. <laughs> no, that's the realize, realize, realize. <laughs> no, like please. Yeah. Okay. Honestly, if you if you listen to the podcast, I feel like mm-hmm. you can listen to audiobooks and process that. You know. I was gonna say like. If especially if it's like the understanding each sentence, but then like middle of the page, you realize that you don't like reading it out loud and saying it over, like saying the sentences over again as you read them, it will start to make sense because obviously like some theory is like really digestible and like is obviously really important concepts and content, but like is just more digestible to read and yeah. you can go yeah. through it and some of it is like dense as hell literally multiple pronouns reference like multiple yeah. like yeah. generic pronouns <laughs> things like mm-hmm. a lot of new vocabulary words like mm-hmm. also a lot of these people are writing nerds and some mm-hmm. of them can't write but or people important. are lawyers like a lot of these people are just yes. like lawyers so or like, psychologists or whatever so they're writing there's like stylistic that. things yes. that can make it easier or more difficult to understand and so part of it is one, understanding, like, how you read and maybe finding a theorist that, like, works for you and reading a lot of their things just to get, like, yeah. to build that muscle. And some of it is just, like, rereading, reading out loud, also talking with people or even yes. just, like, talking to yourself about what you read because there's absolutely no way that I – I mean, I th- I feel like I've said this, like, probably 20 times on this podcast, but there's absolutely no way that I could have, like – started my learning or internalized the first couple of texts that I did if it weren't for doing it on zoom reading groups and like Mm -hmm. the mem like the memories of passages and texts that I have that I read during the 2020 reading group is because I remember the conversations Mm -hmm. of like when we paused to talk about this thing Mm -hmm. like it's not just the fact that I remember sitting Mm -hmm. or like because especially if you're reading on a pdf like trying to have any recollection of like reading dense digital copies of things mm-hmm. it's like that's going to be difficult on its own so yeah no talking, honestly reading out loud listening to it are mm-hmm. like yes my top three the the reading groups and also just discussing it with someone else it's like so important mm-hmm. that's why i think there is so much value looking in... up talks on YouTube. <laughs> yes yes mm-hmm. and like panels and stuff looking at the yeah. references that someone that you find is digestible and understandable like looking at what they who they are quoting and stuff like and then going from there because everyone mm-hmm. has footnotes footnotes on footnotes on footnotes like like and it's also something where it's like it's if you have this is something that i've said before like for years and i myself have hosted reading groups like race mm-hmm. affinity reading groups like 
communism prison abolition reading groups i've attended reading groups like i've i've done that like i've i've hosted that and also like attended obviously essentially like you know undergraduate level and graduate level like seminar love like seminar reading groups essentially or like book clubs like these are all that is how i think people are meant to process information uh, like in that yes. way you know that's not you, you it's a relationship between you and the text and this is that's also why we like have the podcast and whatnot because like you can't there there are there are ideas there are texts but like you kind of you have to talk about it to figure it out and also like just me as a person I'm such I'm like such a nerd about these things and so many of my friends are such nerds about these things that I can always ask them questions like so what are your thoughts about mm-hmm. <laughs> like so can you explain to me taiwan's relationship to china in the 20th century and like my friend will go on like a rant and like it'll be fantastic Mm -hmm. i i find it really fun and interesting or like you know people will ask me wait so what are what are your opinions on like you know blah 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 or they'll be like when i was reading people will dm me and like you can feel free to just like message me anywhere and be like if you have like specific questions or things you want to process about texts or about things that you're reading that you that don't really understand mm-hmm. you don't really understand or that you are working through because I love doing that and I subject people to that against their will not against their will but like you know I well yes I do hold them hostage I will be <laughs> like so let me take this book off my shelf and read you passages and be like and see what they are saying here is that <laughs> so and I and I, I love to do that and I think, like, just that, like, other people and, like, communities, that's really a good resource. And, like, we, or, like, I am very willing to be that, I would mm-hmm. say. And there's so many, like, podcasts as well that are just available, like, wherever you're listening to us right now, that are just people reading theory like that are just reading and or discussing theory like that's it's their book clubs essentially like um i know like rev left radio revolutionary left radio is like the one that people all of our friends are obsessed with blowback (laughs) right now which is like Mm -hmm. an anti-imperialist uh podcast and i would uh, also say like finding theory that is about something that you want to learn about or that you want to read. Like if you're into like Marxist feminism, right. And that's like something that you really want to learn about, like finding something that you also have the passion to keep reading or that you want to understand, or like if you want to find a way into reading theory, reading about something that like speaks to you so that you, it also kind of, you can use the observations that you have probably come to in your life as a way to be like, oh, this thing that I'm reading, like, speaks to this exact experience, or, like, I've seen this play out in real life, which at least in my case has been the case when I've read a lot of theory, especially feminist theory, but even, of course, Bible, State and Revolution by Lenin, Mm -hmm. of course, and, like, the first, the very first time that I read it, because I've, like, gone back to it many times, Mm -hmm. and being, like, that was the 2016 election. He's literally writing about the 2016. <laughs> he's literally writing about my experience during the 2016 election right now. And it's like, bitch, this was written 100 years ago. Uh-huh. So I think that like also helps in terms mm-hmm. of like processing. And because you're reading like a form of theory or a genre of theory in terms of like, you know, there's like economic text or social text or things about sexuality and race, like 
it also just familiarizes yourself with a set of vocabulary that's going to kind of be running throughout a lot of these texts and that will help as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Hopefully. there's also like people people who are theorists have written like who have written novels or have written like autobiographies and stuff. Like, for example, because if you find, I know you don't mention it here in your email, but like if you find that reading fiction is just easier for you or like a narrative is easier, mm-hmm. there's stuff that functionally works as that, which we'll get into when, or I will get into when I get into my syllabus. Mm-hmm. So, but um, yeah, in terms of the Taylor Swift thing, like, okay, them being friends is just or just like you know well they're not friends they're dating but like mm-hmm. he is friends with basically everyone that you listen to like if like if you are so if you we like based off the stats and the demographic data that spotify provides us like mm-hmm. you <laughs> you guys listen to like phoebe bridgers and like muna and whatnot and like he is good friends with these people you know what i mean like yeah the the thing is, is that it's a really, like, incestuous, like, dynamic within the music industry, as is with all, you know, rich and famous people. Like, that's just kind of how it is. And I think, like, that is something that, like, being unable to enjoy the music of someone who is in the midst of, like, drama like you were talking about in terms of being a fan of someone until 2017, which is, like, you know, a really universal experience for a lot of people who really, who fucked with her. Like, Mm -hmm. that's just sort of, like, a natural experience of, you know, listening to a pop artist who makes, you know, popular music. But it's, like, sort of the, it is the social discourses. It is the, the, the discussions and, like, whether people care about it or not that makes people, I think concerned or mad enough or not or like or concerned enough to have it affect their like listening habits I th- I think and that is something that is just sort of the nature of the game and I mean I just think that's just how it is because like you can't be as big as Taylor without and be as controversial as her without like even when she's not trying to spark controversy when she's just like existing as who she is um or when she is courting it by doing things like it's I think like your how you feel about like an artist's relationship to their what they express politically and how they are socially perceived and stuff is just like that's your own thing to figure out like I think that's like in terms of like what are your thoughts it's like I can't I don't know I can't judge people for like really loving Kanye as an artist and like listening to him like I don't care you know what I mean like I can't really care unless someone is like literally an abuser I really don't care most of the time because I think and it's not because of the separation between the art and the artist but because I kind of understand that like on some level, the way that people choose or don't choose to, like, engage with controversy surrounding artists is, it's, it's really wishy-washy. No one has real, like, you can't base your principles off of media consumption in a lot of ways. Like, that's just not really, like, a thing. Like, people, mm-hmm. everyone's gonna stream Nikki. It doesn't matter that she's married to a rapist and defends it to her fucking dying breath because 
she is the goat of like wrath. You know what I mean? Like it's obviously it's really terrible that she does that. But like these things have to coexist because you can't be like, you can't, you can't just deny something, deny a truth because another truth exists, you know? Like silence, like for example, like Doja Cat obviously works with like Dr. Luke who you know, sucks. And a lot of people work with Dr. Luke. Like, that, this is just the nature of the music industry. And the way that people engage with who is not, who is controversial enough at any given moment to not be kosher to listen to is mm -hmm. totally based off of, like, the tides of pop culture of that time. So, like, how you exist on those, on those waves of, of those tides, I think is just, it doesn't have, I don't think it really has to reflect that much on, on you, on you, at least personally, in my opinion. I, I, like, something I've seen a lot is people who are, like, huge, like, Muna or Boy Genius fans who, like, are really shitting on Taylor right now. And I'm like, they have more longstanding relationships with Maddie Healy in the 1975 than Taylor does. Like, in the, in the past, in the recent years, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, that, this is not... We can't be pointing fingers in this way because no one can base their morality on their media consumption when it comes to, like, pop music, I don't think, mm -hmm. unless you're listening to, like, like R. Kelly in this day and age. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of... <laughs> I was going to say, it's like, I, f I agree, but then I also feel like there are times when it's, like, people's consumption or who they're willing to still consume the art of after certain things really does speak to their politics. The film industry really shows this because oh, yeah. like, I don't really give a fuck if you're watching a Woody Allen or a Harvey Weinstein movie in 2023. I really don't ever want to talk to you. <laughs> like, and it's not like you've like live under, you've lived under a rock for however long. Like, and I think like R. Kelly was another artist that I was going to bring up. And it's like, I don't really care if someone likes his music. I think if you're streaming R. Kelly, that's that's yeah. bad. Like, like, yeah. and so it's like, but it, it's also it's like, it's 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 just not. It's hard to be like, like you said, like you can't base your politics or your sense of morality based off of the media consumption. But I also think that who you consume and who you support artistically or in the media that you consume does speak to your politics. And yeah, it does reflect that, your values and your interests. Yeah, and, and so finding that line and finding how to delineate like mm -hmm. the Woody Allen, Harvey Weinstein's, R. Kelly's from and the people who still watch their movies or listen to their music to the like various things or like from Nicki Minaj or Azalea Banks 1975 <laughs> or Azalea Banks yeah. exactly it's like and well yeah. Azalea Banks is an enigma because <laughs> for separate reasons but and yeah. that's not to say that she doesn't have a problematic past but she also has a past of being correct so it's like you could pull up two like equally powerful but one like way wrong and one like way right Azalea Banks quotes um no her, her recent birthday was so funny everyone pulling up their favorite like yes <laughs> which is like it's just like so crazy but it, so it's just like when it comes to like it's like do I think that everyone who listens to Lana 
wants to date a cop just because <laughs> Ray publicly dated a police officer. Like, no, I don't think that. But it's just like, I do think that there just has to be consideration. And I also think that you have to have your own strong, correct politics. Yeah, be self-aware. And listen, yeah. And versus if like you are just like a bad person and you listen to artists to do bad things and you're just like, well, other people still listen to them too. It's like, well... You That's also you just are bad don't people. give a fuck about them. yeah. Like, like <laughs> you just don't give a fuck in like a yeah. really yeah. detrimental way. Versus like this artist is gonna is a separate person. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like. Yeah, and I think, like, that's the other thing. Some, like, sort of half-assed criticisms and stuff that I've received, like, back in, like, 2021, when I was still pretty active mm-hmm. on TikTok and whatnot, like, people would comment, like, and you love Taylor Swift? The white liberal feminist? Well, blah, I mean, blah, blah. like, how many right? times have we How many it? times how many have times we gotten this? That? And that was our most recent cancellation was- as well, right? I was going to say the whole thing. I'm like, you guys are communists, but... Exactly. Are, are like, tweeting about Taylor breaking up with Joe. And it's like, we can hold multiple truths. Like, hello. No, and also it's like... Exactly. Like, again, we all live in this same world. And the way that, Mm -hmm. like, you choose or don't choose to engage with the pop culture that is, like in inevitable sort of (laughs) part of the fabric of our reality, that... You cannot use that as your primary or even secondary or even tertiary way of judging how good of a person someone is, which is why most Swifties Mm -hmm. are getting the fucking chopping Mm -hmm. block because you guys are freaks. Like, it does not matter whether you love an artist or not. This doesn't Mm -hmm. really say that much about your values unless it is someone who is, like, literally a rapist and, like, literally an abuser. That says a lot about your values. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that does. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, like... this is not really this cannot be your primary indicator of like your beliefs like who what music you like and what shows and movies you like watch like this that's not serious because now you're putting far too much weight on something that is also an element of like capitalist reproduction of our existing Mm -hmm. exploitative systems in a way that like reduces our human being like you know identities as like workers within this system to like what we consume and you know like out that's that's also not that's not like a slayful leftist communistic approach to this and i don't Mm -hmm. think like people understand that like I, I don't I think just... people have the media literacy to understand that. Is <laughs> the thing. Like all. I'm thinking about like this conversation and it's like there's like because <laughs> I mean I don't know if listeners like on Twitter, like on like media consumption Twitter or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck. The thing is is that everyone thinks that they have media literacy and can mm-hmm. have really good takes about something and there's <laughs> way too many people on Twitter right now. And it's like actually a lot of you don't know what the fuck you're talking about but are saying this with Just because confidence. you watch Succession does not make you a communist. Like let's it, well, it's be serious. Like, it's just Having a Twitter account doesn't mean that you have media literacy, like, just because you can fucking quote retweet something. And it's like, there are these conversations that I think are important in, okay, how do we consume popular media in this social media time critically Mm -hmm. as young people? And From a feminist lens, from a communist lens, which is our hashtag prerogative, like. Exactly. (laughs) But, like, the spaces in which this conversation can like actually be had and with people Mm -hmm. who also 
share a this closed locked room. It yeah is becoming like smaller and smaller and smaller, mm-hmm. and like is also becoming like other places where those even mm-hmm. light in mm-hmm. passing conversations used to happen are becoming more and more yeah. hostile. Yeah, for and, sure. Which is like making it more difficult because now we just have these projects and these celebrities in like the celebrities that are huge today are bigger than even the biggest celebrities mm-hmm. celebrities who were popular like 30 years ago mm-hmm. let alone 50 years ago like mm-hmm. at the beginning of like hashtag pop culture as we know it to be yeah so it's like but like also we cannot handle conversations about it so oh, it's yeah, like for sure like this is a level of conversation that Twitter would not be able to handle oh, in no, a normal way. Oh, no, not at all. Way. And this is the other thing as well, because, like, I don't understand... Okay, this is something that I, I don't judge people for being into, like, anime or a specific anime or whatnot, but something mm-hmm. that I personally, as about... Like, the same way that I don't really care if someone really doesn't like Taylor Swift because of A, B, or C, mm-hmm. if they still fuck with me as a person, like... I will never, like, I will always find on some level anime so disturbing and disgusting on a political level because of the way that it exists as, like, a soft power arm of, like, Japanese imperialism functionally Mm -hmm. and how it has, like, brain poisoned so many young people into being, like, proto-fascists, essentially, and, like, apologists for like, Japanese war crimes, just sort of in passing in a way that, like, I can't, is so astonishing to witness, and I think, like, people who can't even, like, respect that on some level is something that I just can't, uh, like, I cannot engage with, engage with someone who can't, who doesn't get that, for example, Mm -hmm. because of being, like, Asian and having, and, and being in community with and being so directly and immediately affected by Japanese colonialism. And, like, this is not... And these are things that, like, is also related to media consumption and, like, media criticism and how people mm-hmm. engage with these things and incorporate it into their identities and such. But it's just, like, I I don't think that... Like, for example, like, I don't think that, like, just because you watch anime or really like anime, you are immediately a fucking freak. But mm-hmm. <laughs> the same way, but I, I, I extend that sort of, you know, <laughs> that leeway and that understanding in mm-hmm. a way that I hope other people who really think that Taylor Swift is, like, a fucking evil capitalist billionaire bitch, which, I mean, on some mm-hmm. level, she functionally has to be, to be the person that she is at the level mm-hmm. that she is. To think that, like, that that is not, that doesn't reflect my politics or, like, my approach to, like, feminism or whatnot. Like, that, mm-hmm. these things cannot be, we, we can't tie these things together in this way if we have, mm-hmm. if we're going to see each other as, like, people, as comrades, as, like, you know, people who can see eye to eye on things that are way more fucking important than, like, what movies or music you like like that's just really yeah our perspective on this is because we take literature classes <laughs> like, our, like it is because we have ha- no like it's like there's something that comes from sitting and debating like old ass literature <laughs> where just- even the world that they're describing mm-hmm. is like so different like, from our reality exactly and even just having different tapes like Sorry, I hang out with a bunch of compliments. <laughs> okay, guys, sorry that we had a bit of a break, a production break, because mm-hmm. the alarm, the fire alarm started going off. But we were talking about critical media consumption. 
and how this is because we study comparative literature. When you study literature and you're around comp lit nerds, you learn how to discern someone's like taste or what they do and don't like versus like the politics that they hold. Like there are people who like the same things that I do, like novels that we read or whatever. And I'm like, but I don't really agree with you on anything. And there are people who hate the books that I love or love the books that I hated, but I have way more in common with politically. So I think to use media as like your litmus for if someone shares the same views as you or not is not very productive. Unless you're like, again, like a literal like abuser or rapist where you're like, I know that R. Kelly is terrible and I still listen to his music. At that point, it's beyond taste and I do think that you're a bad person. Um, If you don't like The Great Gatsby, I don't really care if you're still like... Well, so there's this really great book that I'm wanting to publish on our Substack, a potential mm-hmm. comparative literary review of <laughs> uh, incoming. And We're it's... nerds first and foremost. Right. We're literary nerds first and foremost. Pronouns, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> that part. But yeah, so mm-hmm. the book I'm talking about is Post Traumatic by Chantal V. Johnson. And it's very, very darkly comedic. It is so acerbic and witty and very much a sad delusional crazy bitch novel but in a way that is just like so refreshing because it's someone who like has really hot takes and is very unapologetic about it well basically it's called post-traumatic because and again this is now going to be me doing a reading of an analysis of over a call the way that I was just talking about in regards (laughs) to talking about reading theory but it's interesting because she's in a lot of these scenes, she's at these sort of snooty upper class white people parties. Our main character is a black woman lawyer who comes from like a working class background in New York City. And now she's and now she's like in the more, you know, snooty upper crust society. And so she's at these parties and stuff. And we see her experience a lot of <laughs> anxiety and paranoia and hyper focus and fixation on her body and her selfhood especially usually being like one the only black woman in the room and it's a really really fascinating and funny novel but there's a section about like media consumption and specifically Woody Allen films that I found so Mm. interesting so on page 174 uh our main character's name is Vivian and Vivian we know from the very beginning of the novel that she's like experienced a lot of sexual violence in her life and this book comes from an author who herself talked about like like she herself obviously has experienced a lot of sexual violence and that's where like a lot of this writing is coming from it's auto-fictional in a way and that's sort of my review of it discusses that as well but they're at a party and they're talking about media and tv and whatnot and vivian the main character is talking to oh yeah okay so this is this is what happened She's, like, trying to flirt with this guy named Elliot, who I think is, like, a married man. (laughs) She says, 
Bold move to keep that Woody Allen book in your bathroom, she said to Elliot eventually, trying to lure him into a private conversation. With a bashful smile, he turned his body toward her. What can I say? He's a genius. Can I ask how you feel as a woman? He said, leaning closer, about the allegations. Vivian laughed and pivoted toward Elliot, pretending to hold a microphone. Well, as a human who cares about women and girls and knows what a predator is, I can say that they aren't allegations, they are facts. And to society, I would say, where were y'all in the 80s? Because this news literally dropped way back then, but no one cared about women and girls then. And y'all only care now because anti-misogyny is cool. And none of this changes the fact that another woman is brilliant. And Denise interrupts with, I'm sorry, but I just can't. I, if I ever get tempted, another woman is in italics because that's a film by Woody Allen, by the way. Denise interrupted with, I'm sorry, but I just can't. If I think Denise is like one of the white ladies at the party. If I ever get tempted to watch anything he makes now, I just remind myself that he molested his daughter. That usually gets rid of my desire to watch Annie Hall or whatever movie you're talking about. Vivian felt her neck getting red. She hadn't wanted this to be a big group sort of conversation. Max said, I've never been invested in Woody Allen, but this comes up for me with like David Bowie raping people. Who did David Bowie rape? Vivian asked. A young girl, I think. No one talks about it. It's weird which sexual abusers people latch onto and which ones people don't. But I do the same thing as Denise. Get tempted to listen to Station to Station and then think about him raping someone. By the way, this is on page 174. Christina said, and Christina is, I think, one of the only (laughs) other black women at the party. I think she's like Afro-Latina. I don't remember. I'm so scared of being caught listening to or watching something by someone who has been canceled. Now I just Google everyone first before I consume anything. We need an FDA, but like for rapists, Vivian said to Christina only and only Christina laughed. Kurt sighed. I just don't care what the artist does or doesn't do in his personal life. Once a thing is out there in the world, it's mine. The artist I can take or leave. Denise turned to face Kurt. But there's money involved. Your consumption is allowing a pedophile to get richer. Don't you see a problem with that? The art and the artist can't be financially separated. I don't care about the money supporting them, Kurt replied, because the issue isn't that abusers are artists. I mean, abusers are everywhere. They do everything for a living. So you find yourself inevitably supporting them. Elliot cleared his throat and said, for me, it depends what the art is about. If the art is actually about whatever the artist is being accused of, then I can't make the distinction between the art and the artist. So like I can watch Crimes and Misdemeanors, but I can't watch Manhattan. It's too close. Vivian tongued to the inside of her cheek as they spoke, different parts of her clamoring for attention. One part was happy this conversation was happening, but another part was enraged. She was the one who had been talking about sexual violence for years when no one else was. She had better opinions on sexual violence than any of these people. She should be a sexual violence pundit on TV, really, or the sexual consult, sexual violence consultant to the president. At the very least, she should be writing sexual violence explainers that would be widely read and shared online. But what was she doing instead? Standing at a party, completely unheard, unappreciated, and unrepresented. There was a moment of expectant silence that comes when everyone in a group has given their opinion about a topic and they all want to be the one to say the next brilliant thing about it to offer the one take that everyone can rally around to have the one interpretation that sticks vivian jerked up into this void dramatically sloshing her drink around in her cup taking a gulp before speaking look she said pedophiles can make important movies about women she took a beat another women another woman is brilliant gina roland's performance is legendary and there just aren't many movies that portray an intellectual woman grappling with the limitations of her own personality i'm the most feminist person here she continued with self-aware vanity holding her right hand to her chest and making eye contact with each person (laughs) 
this is why I was cracking the fuck up reading this whole book, even though she's talking about fucking like rape and like racism the whole time. Like it's just her talking about the depths and hells and horror of like weed addiction, paranoia, and like hating everyone you've ever encountered and me being like, ha 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 ha. Anyway, <clears throat> she continued with self-aware vanity, holding her right hand to her chest and making eye contact with each person as if they were the members of some jury. And my love of that movie doesn't negate my loyalty to the cause. Maligning a pedophile's work product, that's the morally easy thing to do. For me, when we're talking about moral duties, the real test is what you do when you know or suspect that abuse of women or children is going on in your life, in your actual life. I like to see the people who refuse to watch Manhattan or The Cosby Show or Two and a Half Men reruns actually have their moral construct tested when someone close to them turns out to be an abuser. Because we all know someone who is abusive, whether we're aware of it or not. On the far end... Your father could be out there molesting people, she said, pointing at Pauline. But at the very least, we all know toxic people who must be stopped. Do we stop them, though? I think we fix it. I think we fixate on the ethics of aesthetic consumption because it's easier than dealing with the moral trespasses of real life. It's easier to denounce an artwork than a family member, right? Or a friend? So ultimately for me, all this talk about whether we should watch Annie Hall or Dance to Ignition Remix or whatever is a distraction from the larger problem. How do we prevent the mass rape and abuse of women and children? And what do we do with the offenders? It was a solid speech, very high school oratory, very opening statement, very militaristically vanquishing the enemy. She took a triumphal sip of her drink, surveyed her lands, waited for her applause, but she didn't get any. No one knew what to say, and she didn't understand what she'd done. She had to read their faces. Pauline was looking at Vivian like she was crazy. Denise's face indicated that she was puzzling over Vivian's remarks and couldn't speak until she had a rebuttal. Elliot seemed sympathetic, perhaps felt it was too soon to express a sympathy. They had only just met, and Vivian had suggested that his father-in-law could be a pedophile. <laughs> Max looked like he was watching a reality show where women compete against each other, and one of the women had just come for another one of the women in a crossing-the-line manner. That was also true. And so, while he was slightly disturbed, he was also thinking, she's not wrong. <laughs> anyway yeah post-traumatic brain... i could see either of us standing up in a room full of people and proclaiming i'm the most feminist person because <laughs> there are many times that i've hashtag, hashtag talk about women in literature and then like actually i'm the, the most feminist up. person i'm the most feminist person here <laughs> no that's why vivian is real as fuck because because sometimes you are, sometimes you are the most feminist person in a room, <laughs> and no one is getting it. Literally, no so, one is getting objectively, it. Objectively, someone has to be. <laughs> like in every room. Technically, there is the most feminist person in that room, even at like the fucking like GOP convention. There objectively is going to be, even if it's low, the most feminist person in the room. I like to think that when I'm in a room, I'm the most. Until I'm face-to-face with, like, Judith Butler or, like, Angela Davis, I'm going to operate as if I'm the most feminist person in the room. <laughs> Ooh, oh, I can't breathe. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's the final hot take on media consumption and morality mm-hmm. and ethics is a piece of media that talks with talks about media consumption and then morality and that's ethics. That's the most lavender menace <laughs> to, to answer that question. Yeah. Oh, and Speaking with the... Wi- of- Oh, did you want to segue into our our syllabi? Our celibacy? Our celibacy. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, but also the last part that Elle, oh. that Elle mentioned about mm-hmm. white people and racism. I think, like, hmm. 
how do I say this? I didn't really, I think, I think I didn't have any close relationships with, like, white people besides, like, my best friend Chloe when I was five years old at pre- uh, in elementary school. Um, but outside of mm-hmm. that, like, I just wasn't really around that many white people until I started, I started having more cognitive abilities. And at that point, <laughs> I was like, mm, yeah, something's not right here. Something is not right. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think, like, on some level, you will always, you will always know that you will not be seen as a human being person by someone before you're seen as something that is not that (laughs) like and that is just oof but I feel like it's probably different for you because like your family is white and like they have to see you as a person if they're your family members like (laughs) yeah I was gonna say it's a bit different because like growing up and like my grandparents being white like I have very conservative grandparents and but I've also been a very and like I've always been who I've been like when I was an annoying Mm -hmm. bisexual in high school like like, you were an annoying bisexual in high school exactly like and like my very conservative grandparents like knew that I was going and was excited for the ACLU conference that like Mm -hmm. we met at Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know so like my hashtag Californian teen liberal slay was like yeah. not a secret, but mm-hmm. I was always like a very beloved grandchild at the mm-hmm. same time. So it was it like they always supported me. Like they always wanted me to be happy and successful and safe and, you know, taken care of. Yeah, I don't believe but, in that, but I love, but I support you. <laughs> lit- literally, that's how it was. So and like when you're like a child, like when I was like in fucking mm-hmm. elementary school, you know, but, like, as I've gotten older and had my, poli- like, it's, like, this wasn't a phase. Like, actually, now I'm an adult who holds these things. It's, like, a little bit different, but we also just don't talk about it. Like, they're just happy that I'm graduating college. Like, they mm-hmm. don't care that, like, over the course of this time, I've become, like, a communist dyke, you know? <laughs> like, like they're happy that I have a job lined up after graduation. Like, but... Mm how my individual family members function as white people in society separate from me is as white people and the level of safety that other people of color have around them is like for them to discern like I'm not Mm -hmm. there are family members who are anti-racist because aside from me being their family member they are Mm anti-racist and like that I know and there are others who I'm like you are just not like you are just a white family member because I do love my family but like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't make you more or less racist that I am a black family member too you know what I mean Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. I just have my personal relationship to them yeah so that's been something that I've just always had to navigate as what I like what being black means to me I've always known that I was black Mm -hmm. like I've never I obviously I didn't know fully what racism was but Mm -hmm. I knew that when people saw me and saw my mom they didn't think that I was her daughter on the basis of the fact that we have two different skin tones Mm -hmm. and I knew that that was the first thing that people saw Mm -hmm. about me as I've gotten older and as my understanding of racism and blackness and what it means for me to be black has changed 
that has also changed my relationship to my family. How I function, I, I will say that growing up around white people, I know how to talk to white people mm-hmm. in their language mm-hmm. in a way that makes at least some interpersonal interactions easier. But that really, as I've since I've turned 18 and I travel without my parents, I go out without my parents, I go out with friend groups that are predominantly not white, if not zero white people at all. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, avoiding white people becomes necessary. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's it's just the truth. Like I like I still I don't just because I have nice white family members doesn't mean that I think that white people yeah. are like safe to be around. Like that is just not. No, no, no. That's just that would be that would like I would have to be literally removed from reality to think <laughs> that, that was possible. Yeah, 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 for sure. So yeah, those are the two hot takes. Or was it two? Yes, I think so. That we are talking mm-hmm. about today. And so, yeah. Okay. Me and Renaissance had very different experiences with our queer <laughs> literature, our queer history literature classes. And You could say that again. And, like, the thing is, is that my queer lit professor is beloved. Actually, I showed him beloved zine. I showed him the beloved zine. He mm-hmm. was like, oh, I'm so proud of you. I was like... <laughs> One time he was like, yeah, and my partner and I watched and everyone in the room looked at each other like, right. <laughs> Please. Oh, help, help, help. Yeah. Anyways, old gay people are so great and amazing because they'll be like, yeah. And when I met Leslie Feinberg, <laughs> I, 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 Adrian Rich came here and, and, and spoke a few times and, you know, she's a, she's a nice lady. <laughs> That's so crazy. Like, they walk among us. <laughs> no, like, sometimes remembering that these people are just, like, like regular-ass regu- people. Regular-ass people. Or that, like, other people have memories of just, intera- yeah. like, interacting with them. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> to me, that's Beyonce. To me, that's, that's Club Renaissance. That's the like, reputation meet and greets. Like, <laughs> yes. That's a secret session. Gay people like. celebrity, gay <laughs> gay theorist celebrities versus regular mainstream celebrities. <laughs> Help, but yeah, my class was. Whew, whew. It says okay in the in the introduction to the syllabus. It says transgender rights, gay marriage, and Hollywood and sports figures media advocacy are only the latest manifestations of the rich queer history of the United States. This course will explore American LGBTQ plus history and culture from the late 19th century to the present, with an emphasis on consequential developments in society, politics, and consciousness since Stonewall in 1969. Focus on intersectionality and different historical present-day terms, clear outline of different queer rights milestones in the late 20th and early 21st centuries combined history literature film and cultural studies and class discussions written analysis and yeah so (laughs) we sort of went through this chronologically in terms Mm -hmm. of you know the united states and (laughs) we start although actually before we started chronologically we read fond home by alison bechdahl and mm-hmm. that was our introductory sort of text for our queer lit class. And then 
our sort of textbook for the whole course was A Queer History of the United States by Michael Bronsky. And the book was not without critique from our professor and from our class as well. Like we definitely had criticisms, but it had, you know, contributive elements and a lot of like narrative and historical facts and stuff that were really interesting. And Mm -hmm. we also read a bit of Moby Dick by Herman Melville and how mm-hmm. queerness and like this homoso- homosexual desire intersects with the characters of color that emerge in here. So because there is this Polynesian character that the white sailor like sort of interacts with and there is queer subtext there. And we also read Eve Sedgwick on homosocial desire, Mm -hmm. a classic text. And then next we read Walt Whitman, Song of Myself, and the Calamus poems. So we read um, the Whitman poems and looked at, like, transcendentalism and, like, the queerness of, you know, the, the Whitman and the connection to nature and spirituality and stuff of like the you know earlyish 19th century while also while still you know this whole time we're still reading Bronsky a queer history of the United States and then we read some short stories <laughs> also from like the 19th century and this was called women's romantic friendships and boston marriages and it was this short story called Martha's Lady by Sarah Orne Jewett, and then the short story called Philippa by Constance Fenimore Woolson, which are both like so, so, so subtextual and doing very interesting things with like class and like the, a handmaiden and an uncivilized tomboyish young character and mm. a, a, a married woman or a young woman who's like intellectual and involved there. And still in the 19th century and still looking at like the Gilded Age in particular, we, you know, we looked at medicalization and how that comes about in this short story called Paul's Case, A Study in Temperament by Willa Cather. And there we also looked at this mm-hmm. article called The Emerging Homosexual Identity During the Gilded Age by Jay Hathaway. And then we looked at Gertrude Stein the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, a couple chapters from that. Oh, I remember you reading that. That was huge. That was fun. <laughs> All of these readings that Sunny's describing, I, I got snippets and was, re- <laughs> was read to passages of and have many memories of these texts as well. Right. The secondary refractory memories. I've met the professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, And no, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas, their relationship is so interesting because it's like that is what the late 19th century, early 20th century, they're Americans who lived in Paris. They're both I think they're both Jewish women who were sort of in the art and literary scenes. Like there would be no Picasso without Gertrude Stein. There would be no Matisse without Gertrude Stein and like Mm -hmm. the uh, studios or what's it called? the parlors the salons that she ran Mm -hmm. and she was just she she was just a dyke like come on uh (laughs) and she had a wife and weren't they butch femme too or like proto butch yeah basically uh if you look at all their photos together and stuff and you you know it's it's giving because because like gertrude stein would refer to alice b toklas as like my little wife (laughs) 
And Alice would be, mm-hmm. I would, I think would refer to, like, Gertrude Stein definitely took, like, the, the stereotypically, like, masculine role of mm-hmm. being the writer and the forward-facing, like, egotistical uh, character of the two. And Alice B. Toklas was the one who was more quiet and reserved and behind the scenes. And she made a lot of, she was a, she did a lot of embroidery. Oh, also, when they were really old, they were invited to, like, the opening shows of, oh my god, it was some fashion house, like, Balenciaga or some shit. Like, and also, like, all the gay photographers, like, British fashion photographers of the time of the early 20th century, like, loved them and, like, photographed them as well. So, yeah, they, they were, they were a little iconic and, um... And, and there's a lot of focus on, like, Paris, honestly, because then we looked at The Book of mm-hmm. Salt, the first couple chapters, by Monique Truong, which is a retelling of the... Or, like, takes a perspective of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas's relationship and tells that story from the perspective of their Vietnamese chef. And we also, re- we also read Becoming Gertrude and Alice by Wanda Korn and Terza True Latimer, which is in a, I think a book called Seeing Gertrude Stein, Five Stories. And that was a book that, or like an introductory, an introductory pamphlet or something like that for a museum exhibition that presents a lot of like Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Douglas's like, you know, their clothes and their furniture and their stuff as like fetish objects within a museum and stuff and so we read Mm -hmm. those things and we looked at that and that was really interesting and still staying in Paris we then read Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin and um we kept we, we still kept up with queer the queer history of the United States by Bronsky yeah that's about halfway through the class I would say pre-Stonewall stuff. So the class is sort of split in like pre-Stonewall and post-Stonewall material. But did you want to talk about your class now? Because now I've been sort of just talking about what we've done. Yeah, I was looking at the course description again, and it's like the shortest course description that I've ever oh, Jesus. seen for any of my classes. Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, it says, explores non-heteronormative sexuality, identification, and desire as topics in American literature also offers strong critique of heteronormative paradigms that was not witnessed in the class. (laughs) Includes discussion of critical works in queer theory and sexuality studies. Also did not see that present in the class. (laughs) I will say, like, huge asterisks. Content aside, my biggest gripe with this class was with my professor and his approach to teaching particularly he it was a 80 minute class and he would lecture the entire time like and if someone asked a question one he wouldn't really answer it if I asked a question he definitely didn't answer it he barely wanted to recognize that I was raising my hand and two he would like just go back to whatever the fuck he was gonna lecture about anyway like it actually wasn't there's no dialogue I don't know. happening. Exactly. I prefer classes that engage, like, actually engage students and, like, can mold to, like, whatever the politics or, like, the conversations are in the class. And that just wasn't happening. 
Um, yeah. I will say one of the first things that we read, though, was Eve Sedgwick's Queer and Now. So I thought it was going to be a fun class. Uh-huh. I remember in the Queer and Now, there's like one scene or like one section where she's talking about teaching like one of the first queer studies classes at this college that she's teaching at and being surprised that straight students enrolled in the class. And then when straight students enrolled in the class, they started complaining because there were like terms that were being used that they didn't know, but like like mm-hmm. Sedgwick and like all the student, all the gay students in the class knew. Mm-hmm. And then my professor was like, so is it a gay professor's responsibility to make queer language accessible to the straight students in the class? And my digas was like, no, but he didn't really like that <laughs> response. And then we read Richard Broncho's The Sweetest Hangover and Jose Munoz's Feeling Brown because Feeling Brown was a mm. response to this, or like a review slash analysis, I guess, of The Sweetest Hangover. The straight students in the class is so funny. Like, mm-hmm. girl, for the next 90 minutes, you're gay. <laughs> That, like, but, and see, that's what I thought. And that's what I believed a fair conclusion of the text would bring. Uh-huh. Is that what my professor decided to lecture well, on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, no. Mm-hmm, so there was, like, in the beginning when I, um, when there was hope to be had. Right. I would, like, really <clears throat> when engage in readings. When life was young and, yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. When I dreamed a dream. And I would, like, take all these notes. And then, like, he'd start lecturing. And I'd be like... Now, where are you getting this? Because I took, I, I took copious notes. And it was kind of... Anyways, then we read Judith, but- Judith Butler's Against Proper Objects. That, very important read. Um, and I really enjoyed that. Again, did I like the lecture associated with that reading? No, mm-hmm. I actually thought it was quite bad. Again. <laughs> then we read Carmen Machado's Inventory. Mm-hmm. Which is a short story. I think I texted you about it. Oh yeah, because Carmen Maria I didn't Machado's get it. Short stories are are great, but inventory. Yeah, remind me what that one's about again. It's kind of this like apocalypse type thing, mm-hmm. and the main. But um, okay, it's from a main character first person perspective, and she recounts um, her life through various like sexual encounters that she has mm. and through describing the environment of her sexual encounters we in the backdrop like when she starts to become an adult like this apocalypse virus type thing starts happen it yeah i think it was written before covid yeah. but it f- feels very covid yeah in that oh way. yeah okay uh, yeah i read this like three years ago yes yeah 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 i think it was it's like a short story a part of a short story collection and i think when i texted you you had read mm-hmm. it's in the collection, and I was just reading it mm-hmm. um, yeah. isolated. Anyways, the first time, I didn't get it because I was thinking from the professor perspective. Second time, it was it was better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we read, like, a graphic novel type thing called Bingo Love. I did not like this graphic novel. Yeah. Sorry, queer graphic novels can go one True. of two ways. I know what Bingo hard. Love is. I, I've seen the, the art style of the cover, and I was like, they're publishing anything these days. Listen, and I don't want to speak too bad because I think the author died before they could <gasps> continue, like, the series or whatever. Like, it no was way. supposed to, like, be a continuation. But also, 
sometimes people make bad art and pass away and both things can be true i'm so sorry is that insensitive i don't think that i should sugarcoat something that's bad just because the author passed away if you're gonna cancel me for that listen i'll Uh take that whack the next one was haunted by the 90s which could have by oh by kijiji kadiji amin Mm -hmm. again could have been good because it's kind of like i believe it was an essay and it was like how the word queer like in the 90s there's this like pivotal point in the politics of like it kind of the reclaiming versus like keeping it's considered a slur right so you have these people who right the, dis- the hashtag through- discourse exactly i kind of didn't like it because it felt very 2010s mm-hmm. liberal queer discourse mm-hmm. in a way and kind of like blaming the actual good radical politics of the 80s and 90s that tried to persevere mm-hmm. but i think there's like kind of an important history like some of the just the facts and the way that they paint that time i think is like important mm-hmm. then he assigned an episode of pose very unserious behavior again nothing against pose but i'm here for american literature then there was the sensuous harlem renaissance reading and by shane vogel and smoke lilies and jade by bruce nugent and again these were good because this was specifically this week was on like queerness in the harlem renaissance Mm -hmm. and like black queer writers and creators during this time which would have been an important unit, but then the mm. actual lectures and the class and what the professor actually talked about was like not that at all. So mm. I was like, bro, why are you teasing me with like, <laughs> like right, why stop are you edging my me? ass? The fuck? No, literally. And then around there is where I start to fall off. Right. I'm not we're, we're lie. Fall, yeah. Because I just, I just, I couldn't get my heart broken every single time right. and every single lecture started to feel like a personal waste of time because. <laughs> I, I just couldn't get on board. Uh-huh. That's about halfway. That's like about, yeah. Like I'm the quarter system. So it's like 10 weeks long of content. Yeah. Well, I think, so, yeah. I mean, the previous short stories and stuff, it, it, we were looking at a lot of stuff that was like, you know, 19th century <laughs> type shit, mm-hmm. even like 18th century type shit. And I think like the focus on these sort of more niche, like even Paul's case, A Study in Temperament by Willa Cather, that was about this boy who was a little live-wristed and runs away to New York with money that he kind of stole. And then he kills himself or something Stealing along Stealing money used to be way easier. Literally. The fact that people weren't doing Literally. it all the time. Literally. <laughs> If there was no such thing as security cameras or DNA testing, mm-hmm. you know how many banks I would rob? <laughs> All you have to do is get away before the police get there. The no, fuck? and we see him do exactly that. Trust. And it's, you know, and like we see the, the bad ends. A time before, ima- sorry, hold on, sorry. Aside, imagine living before security cameras, DNA testing, or a digital footprint. Oh, the shit I would get away with? Are you serious? Bro. I would be straight up killing people. Are you serious? I would be killing like, people. All you had to do was just get away before the police showed yeah. up. Put on some goddamn gloves. Come on. <laughs> like I I feel like people should have been like people should have just been robbing shit way more. Mm-mm. No, the that's why there were political assassination atta- attempts actually. 
<laughs> in a way that we have, that we no longer that we no longer exist in that reality and that's just really sad but mm-hmm. anyways yeah and yeah but so then we looked at <laughs> then we read ruby fruit jungle by Rita Mae Brown, which was a hoot and a holler. Let me tell you, I, <laughs> this is a real thespian lemonist novel. You know what I mean? Like, this is a real like 70s dyke shit. And it, mm-hmm. but it's like one of those things that's like, you know when something is niche and underground and then it blows up and then everyone is like, ooh, now it's cool to be gay. It was like the embodiment of that because it was published by like these underground lesbian feminist indie presses and circulated then, but then it got, you know, popular and then mainstream and then everyone was reading it because it's like oh i'm cool and hip and i'm like a cool person in the 70s and 80s yeah i've read i've i've read rita may brown ruby fruit jungle uh mm-hmm. so it became like one of that, which you know of course we and we continue to see that to this day right like the mainstreamification and how pop culture and queerness have this relationship to each other right and so ruby fruit jungle was one of the one of the prototypical manifestations of that and this book is so funny and so problematic and our main character molly is just how do you describe this she's a heroine who is an anti-hero except has no self-awareness about it so she's just a heroine to herself and (laughs) like that's sort of the vibe she's giving that's what you're your private Twitter is for you. <laughs> You're a heroine to yourself. No, right. Rita Mae Brown is hilarious because she <laughs> she was a part of the original Lavender Menace, like a radical lesbian <laughs> feminist group. And uh, in the book, it there are these scenes that are so funny and very like anti-butch femme, which is classic for the radical lesbian feminists of mm-hmm. the... 70s and 80s and whatnot and it's and we also see this in like audrey lord's writing as well and it's very it's very funny to see like it's really hilarious to see the ways that like regardless of the amount of like struggle and discourses of day-to-day life was happening in how down bad and terrible terrible it was for gay people in these times people were still fighting about some shit (laughs) the inner community Mm -hmm. dynamics of like who was fucking who and like what weird sex people were having and like the racial politics of things the class politics of things like being from florida or being from the south and now living in new york like all these things were yeah an axis of oppression being from florida (laughs) (laughs) we'll see and molly bolt our main character lives that she lived breathed and died with that oppression (laughs) some of us aren't morally lucky like being not born in florida sorry that's a mix of a twitter reference and (laughs) right 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 oh god so yeah that i that's just like a seminal gay piece of media, I would say. And then another seminal gay piece of media of the lesbian feminist era was Adrian Rich's poems, the 21 Love Poems. And mm-hmm. then we watched a 1989 short film. Well, is it a short film? It's 50 minutes long. 50 is Looking for Langston by Isaac Julian. It's a very artsy, black and white, giving, you know, and it's, it's, 
there's some like bluegrass music there's a lot of focus on there's like on a visual level there is a interest in the relationship between like black gays and white gays in the during like the harlem renaissance during just throughout like new york and you know langston hughes you know repressed queer history and identity and yeah and then we looked at gloria and zaldua borderland slash la frontera and that is like a very seminal essay about being a woman of color being a lesbian feminist who comes from like a machismo like community and the ways that fighting like fighting the front of feminism within one's own community but fighting like racism in you know lesbian slash feminist communities like she talks about that mm-hmm. in like the borderlands of that existence what it means and it's just a really seminal text that also gets into the spirituality of like mestiza identity essentially and like what um indigenous goddesses and figures and folkloric women who and their existence and their roles within narratives of patriarchal like domination and colonization and such and it's written in a poetic form with a mix of spanish throughout and uh yeah it's this is also another like seminal text of the late 20th century and so we read like a passage from that um a section from that and then we were looking at some lesbian films of the 90s uh, specifically the movie Go Fish, made uh, 1994, directed by Rose Trochet. Mm-hmm. And then we were looking at Zami, a new spelling of my name, a biomythography by Audre Lorde. So, yeah. You, you've you seen Go Fish, right? Yes. Yes, I have. It's a great 90s lesbian film. Yeah. It's not like, it's just, it's so, I love 90s lesbian films that like capture it's so 90s and it's so lesbian it's black and white like it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong or whatever but it's so important and necessary it's very indie like y'all you know it was Mm -hmm. made with two dollars and like a lesbian friend Mm -hmm. group in chicago like and it shows and it has like so many and it has young guinevere turner and guinevere turner is just such a staple of real 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 ass lesbian real dykeri her ass needs to be president of cans like the fact that she's not like she is such she's so important to indie film and the fact that she is not given her her full and proper dues Mm -hmm, is such a shame mm -hmm. but yeah, no, it's and it has so many like inside nods and jokes to the lesbian community and like the discourse mm-hmm. that occurs in the film is hilarious as the well. The scene about if someone can be a lesbian if they had sex with a man. Oh my like, god, the trial time at a party, but it doesn't matter. She still had sex with a man. The fucking but trial of getting jumped yes. in the alleyway by all those fucking studs and butchers and all these dykes, and it's this, and it's the one. <laughs> So Literally funny. doing lesbian calculus about <laughs> what does it mean to have sex. <laughs> oh god, it's so 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 good and so funny. The 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 shot of like the tea bag. Lesbians tea. have been up each other's asses. Oh yeah, but also like lesbians have just been up 
each other's asses mm-hmm. and way too into each other's lives mm-hmm. since the dawn of time literally literally like way too into each other's business like why you're not into that girl why not but i heard that she was she's in like a long distance relationship with that girl yeah it's been going on for three years but i don't know like just the tea of it all is so funny the tea but like in multiple ways you know if you if you've seen the movie you know like i mm-hmm. think that film is very important <laughs> And this movie cracked me up and mm-hmm. is also very, like, artistic and uh, just has an artistic integrity to it that we just cannot see in this day and age. <laughs> like, not at all. People don't just, like... People don't people make don't films like this People don't just grab a anymore. camera and make a movie. And if they do, <laughs> like, they... The closest we have is the Gale series by Chris <laughs> That is the closest thing we have gotten to Go Fish since Go Fish. Since 1994. Is Bonnie and Gale's relationship. <laughs> since 1994. The Gale series on YouTube is the closest thing we have to indie film these days. Real ass lesbian indie films. Real ass biphobia. Where is it? Where We're is not it? major in women's studies and minor in women's studies for me to wear heels at my wedding. <laughs> Making out with some girl in the shower is not bisexual. That's making out with some girl in the shower. Mom's against Roadhead. Being against Roadhead is lesbian politics. God. Oh, so yeah. I, I mean, okay. From here on out, it's a lot of novels. It's a lot of movies for the rest of the syllabus and uh so yeah that's how we read zombie which was also an excellent book and good for me to read because i read sister outsider years ago and it was very a very good essay collection and a really good place to start Mm -hmm. but also zombie as like a biomythography what does she mean by that like it's not a biography but it's like also not not a biography and that is something that we see a lot in these texts from ruby fruit jungle to of course zombie to later on stonebush blues right but the next thing on the syllabus was the ang lee movie the wedding banquet which came out in 1993 and we had a reading associated with it called so queer yet so straight by william Vyong, which sort of talks about how queer films of the 90s were really trying to push the envelope of like film as a medium, as a genre, as a form, like queering not only the content, but also the form. That's why we get like sort of artsy shots and black and white shit, like with Looking for Langston and with Go Fish and stuff. However, The Wedding Banquet by Ang Lee is very straightforward straightforward because ang lee is a filmmaker who well he's a straight filmmaker who tells queer stories and we sort of talk about that um and how his approach to telling the story of the wedding banquet which is about this taiwanese american gay boy who is a real estate agent and he has been living with his like long-term partner this white guy named Simon and they have been together for years but our main character Wai Tong his parents are pressuring him to get married to a nice Taiwanese girl basically there's a fake 
it's a fake wedding situation. Her, her, his parents show up at his house and they all live, they're all living in this fucking house together. Wei Tong, oh, Wei Wei, his fake bride, and his real boyfriend and both his parents are all in this house together. So it's like a dramedy in that it's a rom-com, but it's very serious because like he is closeted to his like, you know, Chinese parents and he is really trying to hide his identity from them and also, you know, like still live out his his gay life with Simon. And it's a really, really sweet film. It's really beautiful like most Ang Lee films and it's really touching and moving and it's it's fundamentally about like family and such and it's part of his father knows best trilogy like he has that sort of collection of his films so we looked at that and I also wrote an essay on I wrote an essay on that one and then we read this book called Funny Boy by Shiam Salvadurai and that sort of has a focus on uh, the ethnic conflict with the Tamils and sort of this young boy's experience as like an upper class uh, Tamil boy as he comes of age. And then we read Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg. Mm-hmm. And that was life-changing, revolutionary, essential. I think Stone Butch Blues not being on an American, a queer American mm-hmm. literature class syllabus should be... Illegal. Punishable I- by illegal. death. I, mean, <laughs> I think it's like, because like obviously, or I don't, I don't know, maybe there are schools where the, syllab- the syllabi are posted before you enroll in classes. I saw the title queer american literature i said yes please sign me up because why wouldn't i hello Mm -hmm. no stone butch blues that's crazy no literally i was talking to my no langston hughes actually we talked about him in lecture not on the syllabi or not on the syllabus adrian rich not on the syllabus like the big names the big obvious names yeah well see that's the thing actually there should be a big three fan cam a big like american (laughs) Of queer American <laughs> writers. <laughs> of, of like, each decade. <laughs> each yeah. century. No, dead ass. Of, like, uh, of like 70s Stonewall, lesbians. Le- <laughs> right, no, yeah. We have that Eras. That's the Eras tour. The fuck? <laughs> no, like... Our Eras tour, and it's just various, like, 20th Eras century theorists. <laughs> like, no, because I was talking to my professor, and he was like... I was like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't... I, I didn't realize that So Much Blues was on our syllabus because it wasn't one of the required books to buy um, at the top of, like, the page of, like, you know, the introduction to the course. And he was like, no, no, it, it's – I'm not asking you to buy the book because you can find it for free online because that's what Feinberg intend, intended, intended for it to mm-hmm. be. I, But you can't te- – we can't learn about or teach American queer history or queer history without So Much Blues. It's just not possible. Is what he said. Yeah. Heard it from and him. And he was right. The fuck? He was right. My God. <sighs> I, was so, I was so disappointed, y'all. It was, flop. I was so, Just a flop like, ass class. And for No, what? like it was. And I thought like all my flops were going to be gen ed. Like usually my mm-hmm. upper divs like don't mm-hmm. test me that bad. So I was just like. And it's an upper div mm-hmm. in the English department, which mm-hmm. is like kind of good. And anyways. 
Yeah. You can't win them all. You can't. So, it's so hard. Yeah, guys, it's so hard to be realized. As the most feminist uh-huh. person in the room. As the most feminist person in the <laughs> no, room, it is hard to be a real ass dyke. No, literally. Being the most feminist and the most dyke in, mo- in 99% of the rooms that I walk in is like, you don't even know the weight that's on my Jesus shoulders. has like, never carried a, a cross that could that a heavier like that could not be we we bear one that just lavender menace listeners and streamers biblical magnitude and followers followers of the lavender menace podcast in the biblical sense in the in the disciples i'm I'm sure i'm sure the loyal listeners of this podcast (laughs) can relate yeah they can relate i know i know y'all's ass they they picked up i I know that cross themselves the way the way jesus said if y'all follow me you have to carry the cross as well that's them that's their ass (laughs) listeners when you look behind you and there's only one set of footsteps that's me carrying you we're in this together Right, right, right. Uh, Sorry, sometimes Sunny and I get real American Christian for a moment. We just have to go there, and then we come back. Someone replied to... I tweeted on our podcast account. Our, 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 I shouted out our love for our international listeners. Oh, yeah, And someone yeah, replied yeah. being like, Aw, we love you too. And I get to learn new things, like televangelism. <laughs> Y'all, y'all, y'all never saw a little 700 club on the TV? Joel Osteen, that doesn't mean anything to you? <laughs> that don't ring a bell? <laughs> you were never oh. channel surfing and come across a mega church sermon on a Sunday? <laughs> Lord, yeah. Uh, and then, okay, after so much blues, which, like, not only is it an incredibly essential piece of trans history and lesbian history and butch femme history and culture. It is a piece of labor history that, like, is crazy. Because we see the union organizing. We see these shop floors all across the 20th century and then how that shit changes as the economy changes in the U.S. Like, we see how misogyny manifests in the workplace for these different types of people. We see the femmes who are prostitutes. We see the butches who are the only butches in a male-dominated work workspace. We see the racial solidarity that was necessary in organizing or the racial, the racial tensions that emerged and the misogyny that emerged and was sort of essential in organizing for people during this time it is really really so moving and it's so crucial and it's a type of book that even if you're not american even if you're not queer even if you're not a communist or interested in like trans or lesbian history this is the type of book that will teach you things you didn't even know you didn't know and will teach it to you in a way that like will show you because 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 our main character jess is clueless hapless doesn't really know shit about the world like and she figures things out as things happen and the thing is is it's also a very deeply like triggering book basically every trigger warning you can think of is in here like the amount of violence police violence sexual violence and just 
the tragic things that happen to Jess and to the characters in this book are tragic because bitch being trans and gay in the 20th century that shit is not easy uh the show was not easy mm-hmm. like shit is still not easy and the way that it's articulated in this both simple and funny like Feinberg is a comedian let's let's just say that you know like in this very hashtag funny and hashtag real way but also so touching and so moving mm-hmm. and uh yeah so that was really that was really real af and um then we had another film that was optional because of how because of the sexual violence that is depicted on screen that's arguably gratuitous and it's the film boys don't cry 1999 kimberly mm, pierce mm-hmm. starring chloe sevigny sevigny and sevigny a, a straight actress who plays a trans mask main character hold on don't tell me her name fuck what's her first name hillary 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 yeah no swank right yeah wait it's not banks it's swank it's hillary swank hillary swank yeah. Yep, 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 Hillary yep, Swank. Yep. Elizabeth Banks, Hillary Swank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, see, I didn't watch the film. I didn't watch the film because I didn't have time, mm-hmm. to be honest. It was mm-hmm. optional because of the fact that it's just like... And I, I think it won Oscars or some some shit in 1999. And it's it was an adaptation of the Brandon Tina story, which was a real event of this stealth trans man who was like forcibly outed and then like really violently murdered and assaulted. The required reading though for this class was an article called Britain Goes to Hollywood, mm-hmm. Boys Don't Cry and the Transgender Body in Film by Melissa Rigney that sort of examines, you know, what it meant for, <laughs> you know, Brandon to go to Hollywood. Like what transness, mm-hmm. you know, looked like, especially, you know, 1999, early 2000s, like what, what did that mean? And how did the depiction... She Like, Rigney is critical, pretty critical, of the way that Boys Don't Cry depicts Brandon Tina's story and the way that, like, you know, Hollywood exists here as well. But then our last... Sorry, before you move on from Boys Don't Cry, I also haven't seen it, but they talk about it in the documentary Disclosure, which is uh-huh. the documentary about, like, trans depictions in mm-hmm. film and television. So if someone doesn't want to watch it but wants to learn about the cultural impact uh-huh, of that uh-huh. film, just like in a trans history way, yeah. that is a good documentary to mm-hmm. watch for mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And then we watched Angels in America Part 1, which is like three hours long. <laughs> and we mm-hmm. then, and for that, we also read an article called dystopia eating queer liberalism and the roots of donald trump in hbo's angels in america by patricia ventura and Mm -hmm. the way that this author critiques queer liberalism and like specifically like the white liberal approach to queer stories and representation and the ways that like the reagan examination of angels in america of like you know existing in the 80s and such uh reflects what like the contemporary like trumpian right wing or not reflects but like like prefaces that in some ways and also in the examination of um what the fuck is his name ron not ron 
Robert De Niro. Angels in America cast. This is what That's I do. The only actor who I think. Roy Cohn. No, Al Pacino. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so Roy Cohn. Is one of the two. And his his real life legacy, his real life, the fact that he was a mentor to Donald Trump and his mm-hmm. real life like existence as a person who had, who was HIV positive, but was like someone who literally helped, you know, kill the Rosenbergs during that like anti-communist trial and mm-hmm. through some illegal, illegal shit. And like, uh, anyways, Angels in America, that was really, you know, I was like, wow, that's that's hashtag queer history. And sort of the way that this article critiques it and looks at it and stuff, that was interesting as well. And then we sort of briefly looked at the Lady Gaga music videos, but didn't really discuss them that much. Born This Way mm-hmm. and Telephone. So, yeah. And that was the end of the course. Iconic music videos. Yeah. I'll just go over the other things that were assigned, I guess. One was queerly Canadian Janice Stewart because the professor really wanted to expand the Americanness of queer American literature. Right. Then there was <laughs> Sovereign Erotics by Quilly Driscoll. Then Rolling the R's by R. Lindmark, which I think was about like the intersection between Hispanic and queer identity, but I don't remember it being that good. Huh. Sorry. Uh, then uh, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney and Shifting the Sight of Queer Annunciation by Ernesto Martinez. Mm. So those were... And then the movies that were assigned were uh, Desert Hearts, which I had already seen. Except, okay, he assigned Desert Hearts and then only talked about like the divorce plot line. In lecture, and I was like, "That is arguably the least gay plot point of the entire movie, and it's also like three scenes out of the entire movie." And I'm like, "He's like, what does it mean for someone to go from New York to Reno to get a divorce?" And I'm like, "They have gay sex on screen, like, anyways, like we can talk about something gayer." Then he assigned looking for Langston, which was interesting. And that was during the Harlem Renaissance section, and then that was it. And then we just had to write an analysis of, like, one of the things that we read, and I did a critique of Bingo Love. I think I did a critique of Bingo Love, and I maybe have used Desert Hearts in terms of, because they both talk about, like, gay women and divorce, and I was like, Desert Hearts is way better than (laughs) Bingo Love. And in that regard, in terms of, like, being married, realizing that you're gay, getting a divorce, also being gay for the first time as, like, an adult woman. So, yeah. So, that was my course. I've had better gay, like, honestly, I've read better gay texts in my French classes. Like, I have one of them here. Mm-hmm. Histoire, de, Histoire de la Marquise Marquis de Banville by François, François Timoleon de Choisy. And... Ooh, this one is essentially about a T for T relationship. <laughs> and it's from like, I think it's from the 1600s. I want to say it's the 17th century because my professor is upset. Yeah, this is, this was written in the, in the 1600s. And it's about uh, essentially the mom of 
La Marquise doesn't want her there's a war at the time in france uh-huh. and so when she gives birth and sees that her child is a boy she's like i'm not sending my child to war to get drafted at like 12 years old and raises him as a girl right and he's only dressed by his mother like dressed and washed by his mother and like his mm-hmm. chaperone and so he doesn't know, or she, she doesn't know that she is like raised as a girl like she thinks that she, like she is a girl like that that's the whole thing is like she is a girl um and everyone like thinks she's so beautiful and like compliments her beauty and she's the most beautiful girl like in the court you know yeah and then this like suave marquis comes in and like charms everyone Mm -hmm. and like flirts 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 and la marquis like starts to fall in love and the mom's like no you can't fall in love and like have a relationship because then they're gonna find out that like like you're special you're different from the other girls but right. turns out the Marquis, the suave, like essentially noble guy who comes in, was raised as a boy because the family didn't want like a girl. Like they wanted someone to be able to like raise in class distinction. Uh-huh. So they like sent him off to school mm-hmm. as a boy to like be trained in like the fencing and the horse riding and like get an education. So then, like after like not to be like spoiler alert, you should read it. Uh-huh. I'm just going to say it. But, like, they're like, oh, we're both trans and we both have this secret that we were raised mm-hmm. as, like... Is it a so 19th we can century be French novel? Or is it, like, when was... No, it was written in the 1600s. It is written and set in the 1600s. Oh. Yes. No, gay people, before... Gay people and gay people in literature, and especially, like like, the French love queering the body before they knew they were queering the body Mm -hmm. and then there is like this wave of like conservatism that hits france uh a bit towards like the end of the 1800s into the into the 20th century honestly um it it, like over the course of the 19th century kind of phases from like yeah i mean same we can write this kind of stuff but the 1500s and whatnot in like italy and, and such like everyone is fucking gay no like, being gay was truly just, like, a fact of life. Like, it didn't ma- like, okay, you had to get married, you had to have an heir, whatever. But actually being gay and having gay sex or whatever was kind of just seen as, like, a fact of life. And, like, that's one thing that, like, some of my peers that aren't super tapped into, like, literary studies. Like, my professor, always, like, whenever they make critiques of, like, but a man is supposed to be this way or a woman's supposed to be this way and this character is, like, deviating. And my professor will be like, the conception of a man that you are thinking is, like, the baseline is, like... This was not shaking the table that much at the time. No, literally. Because, like, one of them was, like, this, like, this man character, like, cries too much. Like, he's not being a man. And, like, my professor was, like, men cried all the time. <laughs> like, they were extreme. And, but it was, like, a fact of life. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't like they were overly flamboyant mm-hmm. in the way that, like, now Yeah, that no, exactly. Be, like, that's the hashtag malleability of gender. Like, the, the social, standard. the, like, fundamentally social nature no, exactly. of it. You no, know? like... Oh, right. Doesn't and I have this. Mm-hmm. So I have two. And then I read Fun Home because I did an adaption for it for an assignment in my yeah. screenwriting class fall quarter. And then one of my friends gave me a copy of it. And I know you have a signed copy of it, I think. Yeah, because Tayo, Bessie Oomph, they met Alison met Bechtel. Alison Bechtel. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. Once I heard that news, yeah. I never forgot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes. But I have a physical copy of that. And then 
just for all the gay media. I've also given, I've moved a bunch of my books back home, but you gave me this, which is the feminist oh, yes. film guide yes. for Christmas. The amount of just like gay media, gay reading titles that we just spouted off. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Yeah. I know, I know some gay was like, wait, let me, wait, let me, let pausing, me, writing let me the pause titles. Write that down. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But anyways, do you want to move on to recommendations? Yeah, sure. In terms of recommendations. I have mine because I've been sitting on mine for a while. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, you should go with yours. Okay. My movie that I'm recommending is Kissing Jessica Stein, 2001, directed by Charles Herman Wormfeld, and it is a rom-com. And I got so obsessed with this movie. Like, I ha- I watched it for the first time in October with Oomph Sarah, and then just, like, randomly, I was, like, I, w- I just, like, had finished my work for that night, and I was, like, okay, I'm just gonna, like, put- pop on, like, a feel-good movie, and I watched it, and it, like, did something to my brain. It is so well-written. Every line is, like, like, they wrote it, edited it, went over and over <laughs> and over again that like every line is so like it is that moment and every scene has like this perfect construction to it i think it's so funny and so real some people think that the main character that the characters are bisexual i believe that they're lesbians but everyone is allowed to have their own truth mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. mutual bestie paris recently watched it and loved it mm-hmm. on first mm-hmm. watch so i was like yes mm-hmm. you get it immediately yes. because it does have a 2.8 average on letterbox and i think that is a goddamn crime against humanity 2.8 people don't get it why yes are people because people so poorly because people don't get it People mm-hmm. don't get it. They're blinded. They don't have the media literacy. They <laughs> They're don't blinded. have the capacity to they don't experience see the joy. They don't see the vision. And truly, I think that it is a cinematic masterpiece. I And, like, I really, really mean that. It also just has this beautiful sense of this late 90s, early 2000s New York that is just, like, really fun to see because that doesn't really exist anymore. And no one knew at the time that that New York was not going to exist anymore. So right. it kind of just has like this beautiful, this beautiful romance to it in a very like God honoring rom con way that just also does not exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, the plot point is Jessica Stein, who is this, um, she's Jewish and she's approaching thirty, and her mom is like, "You need to marry someone," and she's like, "I don't want to." And so then her friends kind of, she starts like dating again and she uh, doesn't really like it. And then there's this ad because like people used to put out like ads to date people. Yes. That's, and that's <laughs> real as like, fuck. No, like literally, I mean, that's most, that's most people's Twitter nowadays. <laughs> Anyways, so there's this ad in the women seeking women section but it kind of piques her interest and so she's like i'll go on this date because either i'll get a bestie out of it or like whatever uh-huh. and so the movie kind of shows her like coming to terms with her sexuality and how the two characters meet helen is the romantic lead and interest of the film and okay one thing that i think is so important about this film and why it is so good is because the two main actresses who play jessica and helen are also the two people who wrote it they wrote it together it started as a workshop 
like five minute thing at like this retreat that they both went to. How do you then know it turned lore? into a sketch? Because I watched all the behind the scenes and right. watched all their interviews and fell into a rabbit hole. It then it became a sketch. Then it became this play called Lipstick. Seek Lipstick. Seeking same maybe like colon I can't remember the full title and then it became they're like we should make this into a movie and then they made it into kissing Jessica Stein and then it got premiered at the LA Indie Film Festival got picked up by Fox Searchlight and then distributed and thank God we still have it to this day so anyways beautiful beautiful God-honoring, early 2000s rom-com, gay, gorgeous. Oh, and the soundtrack. The soundtrack. That is how you curate a goddamn soundtrack. Before TikTok could influence the sound of popular movies. That's my pitch. I really, I really love this movie. I really love it. Mm-hmm. I see your pitch. Thank you. I actually have two things to talk about. And they're both... They're both like white women media for the quirky ass bitches out there, for the quirked up hoes in our audience. So I watched this film, that this foreign film called Daisies, made in 1966. And it's just two girlies doing fun, crazy things. Oh, I've heard of I've heard of this film. It's really fun. It's really short. It's really slayful. These are just two crazy girls and they it's very like insane femme coded. It's very two best friends who are very silly coded. Like it's very surreal and colorful and fun and mm-hmm. like hedonistic and just rich and textured in this way that's like no one people don't make films anymore you know what i mean i watched this movie and i was like people are not making fucking movies anymore that's what's crazy mm-hmm. they don't yes they just they don't make they don't make movies anymore they like they tr- like they truly don't make movies anymore it's actually kind of sad no it's sickening it's sickening uh, mm-hmm. but my book recommendation is that you know and i'm taking this into cons- i'm taking y- you and your you and your situation into consideration and that is that you don't like to read contemporary fiction that was published too recently mm that is true yeah which i think is stupid but that's okay <laughs> because this book that i want to recommend was published in the past couple months but i think it's still very it has a sort of timelessness, a a Jenny say qua, one could say. <laughs> that is <laughs> And recently Joycey read it in like one sitting at her work place and was like, Wow, this is so good. And I was like, Yeah, because you're fucking crazy. And this bitch is crazy. And this book is called Big Swiss by Jennifer Began. And mm-hmm. it's, well, are there references to recent things, or was it just published recently? I don't really remember. It's more like when things are referenced. If I can't really, if there's, if it's just published recently, that's fine. Well, well, okay. The thing is, is that it's set in 
Hudson, New York in contemporary times. Mm -hmm. And it's important because, like, the whole vibe of the town is that everyone is, like, microbrewery down. Like, everyone is, like, that type of weirdo goat cheese white person. Mm. And mm-hmm. th- that's a very, like, 21st century phenomena, you know what I mean? And, like, in in the way that it manifests in this book, because essentially our main character is a, works as a transcriber for a sex therapist named Ohm. Ohm has this client that she becomes obsessed with and whom, obviously, it's like a double-blinded situation. She doesn't know the name of the client. The client doesn't know that there's a transcriber. Like, it's that situation. And our main character starts becoming really obsessed with one of Ohm's clients, whom she herself calls Big Swiss. Like, she gives her the name Big Swiss because this woman is from Switzerland. She's a married woman and she is kind of cuckoo crazy but basically our main character becomes really obsessed with her and then one day they run into each other at like the dog park or something and our main character knows that big swiss is big swiss but big swiss doesn't know that she's the transcriber of her sex therapy sessions (laughs) obviously so they develop like a friendship but it's like obviously like homoerotic like you know dyke shit happens it's very very messy and hilarious and stone butches like or like gets mentioned which it like when i heard that in the audiobook because i was listening to it via the libro fm like in influencer program Mm -hmm. i was like I was gagged. I was like, what? (laughs) And uh, it was, yeah, it was really funny and it was a romp, but it was also pretty touching at points. And it was, yeah, it was pretty silly. And the way that it's just about, it's just, it's a crazy girl type of book, but it's like lighthearted in this way. But there is that ongoing underlying dread of like, we know that our main character is doing something fucked up by not disclosing the fact that she knows who this woman is in, like, a different way. And just the fact that mm-hmm. she calls her Big Swiss as opposed to, like, her actual name is, like, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, so I would recommend that book. And to any of our listeners, if you guys haven't read it already, and, like, literary fiction about unhinged women is up your alley, you should check that out as well. So, anyways, that is our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed. Happy Pride Month. Yes. Happy Pride Month, everyone. And, uh, yeah, I hope you have a great Pride Month. <laughs> a great gay month. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye.